be set free as a result. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Just got a couple announcements before Pastor Greg comes up. We want to let you know, if you could not tell by the smell, we're selling burgers this morning, burgers to go. Uh, and so when you purchase a burger after service, it helps our missions team go to the Dominican this summer. And so we want you to be a part of that. They're really good, too. Uh, and then secondly, we have Sunday night school tonight at 6 p.m. Disclosure with Pastor Greg. You get to hear all the crazy things that live inside his head. Uh, and so it's a super awesome time. It's all backed by the scripture. It's really not crazy. It's just when you haven't heard it, it seems like it. And then he reads it out of the Bible and you're like, wow, that was there the whole time. Uh, and so we want to invite you to be a part of Disclosure tonight at 6 p.m. at the big black building on the Hill, our youth center. Without further ado, Pastor Greg's going to come up and bring the word. Amen. Good morning, Lake Church. Let's turn in our Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4, and we're going to try to wrap up our teaching on press. And uh, what we've been endeavoring to do <clears throat> is to explain um, and to bring some understanding about how the will of God works and operates in our lives. Many people want the will of God to play out in their life. It's almost like they would put a record on and, you know, they put the stylus on and, and then they just kind of go into autopilot until it, you know, finishes all the tracks. And many people, that's the way they want the will of God to operate. However, there are seasons in the will of God that it just can't be played out. It has to be pressed out because we don't just operate when it comes to the will of God in a linear line. We operate in cyclical cycles, and it's the cyclical cycles that transform us from glory to glory into the image of the Lord. And many people don't understand the process or how um, these things are worked out in our lives. We think that we can just go into autopilot and these things begin to develop just automatically. However, nothing could be further from the truth. We must cooperate with the will of God by appropriating the word of God, by walking in the light of it and allowing its transformative power to begin to develop in our lives. So we have to yield ourselves up. We just cannot, it's not automatic just because we're saved that the life of Christ begins to manifest in our mortal body. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? And it, we're not working for God. You need to understand that. The works that I'm talking about are not working for God's acceptance, not working for our salvation. We are not to work for any of those things. Those things are freely given to us by the grace of God. Amen? However, to see the kingdom begin to manifest in our lives, there is a process of transformation that takes us from a carnal entity into a fully spiritually developed man. Amen? And that's what I want. How, about, how many want that in their life? All right. Two of you do. That's good. Okay. So we have to understand that suffering, and you're not going to hear this from a lot of of ministries today, suffering is a part of growth in the kingdom of God, but not the suffering of sickness and disease and poverty, because those are things that Jesus suffered on our behalf. 
He became a curse for us so that we could be free from the curse. What kind of suffering are we talking about when we talk about suffering to bring forth the kingdom of God in our lives? Well, we're going to find out. Jesus exemplified this at Gethsemane. And we've shared multiple things. You can go back and listen to the messages. But Gethsemane actually means oil press or the place of the press. It's about pressing. And we know from the study of the scripture that Jesus uh, came to this place all the time. This was his prayer place. This was his customary place to meet the Lord. And you know what? We showed you that you need to have a place, that you need to have a time and you need to have a place to go to the press. And that doesn't mean that every time you're going to be pressed, it just means that you go to the place of the press, which is the place of prayer. The place of prayer is always the place of the press because your flesh deplores submitting yourself to the will of God. Amen? And prayer is the place of the press. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you pray, you're going to feel pressed beyond measure. No, there are going to be times in which it's just communing with the Lord. But there are going to be seasons, and you're being prepared right now, whether you believe it or not, for your greatest success or your greatest failure. You're being prepared right now. And the difference between being able to use that as a transformative process is based upon how much consistency you've had in the press. Amen? Oh, this is going over real well. Everybody likes this. Amen? So we need to understand that suffering has its place in the transformative power of God. It does. Okay? It does have its place. Doesn't mean that God brings it to us. Doesn't mean that he afflicts us. That is not anything that God does. Hello, he's not tempted with evil. But there are places in which our <clears throat> passions, our carnal passions and the will of God intersect. How many have ever been through one of those where your, your passions intersect with the will of God and you've got to make a choice? You've got to make a choice whether or not you're going to do the will of God or whether you're going to yield to your passions. Now, I have to say that I've been through those intersections many times in my life. And I've went right sometimes and I've went wrong sometimes. It just happens. Amen? But we must understand that our consistent prayer life and our consistent intimacy with the Lord gives us a greater probability of being able to step into the will of God and forsake our carnal passions. Amen? So uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 1, <clears throat> says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, other translations say in the flesh for us, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So basically what he's saying is, just as Jesus told his disciples, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. But if they love me, they're going to love you as well. Amen? He said, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, what are they going to call those of his household? So he's obviously telling his disciples and telling us today that you're going to face opposition. You're going to face satanic opposition, demonic opposition. You're going to face opposition. Uh, being, people will come against you. 
Situations will come against you. There is an opposition to growing in the kingdom of God. There's an opposition that came with you coming to church this morning. You could go to Disneyland and have no opposition whatsoever. You could go to Walmart and have no opposition whatsoever. You could, your kids will get together and sing your praises if you're going anywhere else. But when you try to go to church, when you try to go somewhere where you're going to hear a message that's going to bring life and, and uh, health and, and, uh, and abundance to you, the enemy's going to oppose you. It's going to oppose you. Some of the worst fights people have ever had have happened on the way to church. Some of the most horrible texts and some of the most horrible phone calls come on the way to church. There is an opposition to the will of God. And it's not just, you know, um, your will. It's, you know, other entities that want to keep you from fulfilling the will of God. But the number one entity that you have to deal with in your life, public enemy number one, is you. It is not the devil. It is not the devil at all. It is you. The greatest spiritual battles in your life are against yourself. Amen? Because he goes on and he says this, arm yourselves with this way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh but has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So there's the intersection. Human passions, will of God. Human passions, will of God. He says we are not to live any longer in the state of human passions, but we are to yield ourselves up to where we live for the will of God. Amen? And the greatest struggle that you're going to have, if Jesus, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh wrestled with this same thing, you're going to wrestle with it. I mean, it was a major wrestle. Now we need to understand the intensity of his level of sacrifice it far exceeds anything that anyone would ever do in this life. We do understand this, that Gethsemane is a pattern it is a way that we should look at the suffering that comes into our lives and understand that we can overcome because Jesus overcame so that we can overcome. Amen? And so we're going to kind of look at the true suffering of a believer because the true suffering of a believer is not, again, I have to say this multiple times, it is not the things that Jesus redeemed us from. That is not something that we are supposed to be, you know, uh, yielding to and acknowledging or stating that God afflicted us with things that were afflicted on Jesus. When it talks about suffering in the Bible, it generally speaks about persecution. It speaks about obstacles that are brought in in this world. The world system is so contrary to the biblical way of life that you're going to face opposition. You're going to face, 
you know, it's kind of, you're going to go cross grain to the culture. And when you go cross grain, guess what? There's going to be friction. Amen. There's going to be friction. And so a lot of times the enemy will use this friction to get us to back away from the will of God for our lives. He'll use family members. He'll use your own children. He'll use coworkers and people of influence. He can even use the view. God forbid anybody watch that, but he, he can use the view, okay? He can use uh, media influence, things of that nature, to cultivate and to create, you see, an apprehension, a hesitation to the will of God. Amen? So we've got to get a hold of this and understand that we can overcome greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Amen? I'm going to have to get the shockers in the seats again. I'm just going to have to put them in there. Amen? Because that's a good word. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Amen? And there's nothing. Listen, one thing we have to understand is that the more integrated into the carnal world I am, the more desensitized I am to the things of the Spirit. We go to the other side and we say the more acclimated and the more initiated I am in the things of the Spirit deadens me to the carnal things of this life. Amen? Now, you know where the toggle switch is in your life, and I know where it's in mine. And it varies, doesn't it? It varies. You kind of go back and forth. The goal is, is to understand the secrets of Gethsemane. Jesus was able to go through the atrocious things that he went through because he subjected himself to them first in the garden. He crucified himself in prayer. He gave himself up and over to the will of God with the first great wrestling match, which was not the Roman whip, which was not the nails, which was not the various things that he went through in his passion, but it was the great battle on the inside. And when you win that one, you can go through anything. That's what Gethsemane teaches us. When you take the giant, when you slay the giant on the inside, the outward giant is no problem. The problem is, is we're trying to face giants when we've got giants on the inside of us that are basically creating a resonance between the two and they begin to fellowship with one another and we end up backing away out of fear. Amen? Do you think Jesus was fearful? Yeah, he admitted he was. I mean, Jesus came to God and said, if there's any other way, there's any other way. Let this cup pass from me. How many have ever bartered and bargained with the Lord? You know the Lord wants you to do something. Is there any other way? Can I, can I give my way? Can I serve my way? And there are times in our life where no sacrifice will do other than obedience. No sacrifice will do other than just pure, unadulterated obedience. 
And those are the places of the press. That's when you come from one form and you're squeezed into another form. It's just like an orange. In order to become orange juice, the orange has to give up everything that he is to become orange juice. So we get excited when we hear, I'm going to be changed from glory to glory. But then we don't realize that we can't go to it as an orange. God wants us as orange juice for this season of our life. And so we go through a transformative process that kind of presses us beyond measure. Kind of puts, it's where the rubber meets the road, man. It's not the most comfortable season in our life. But once we graduate out of that, we are able to walk at a higher level of living. Oh, I tell you what, that's good stuff. Amen. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 27. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. What Jesus went through was absolutely horrific. What he did on our behalf is absolutely astounding when you begin to read it, begin to study it. The English translations of your Bible really kind of muffle it. Because when you get into the original language, you see that this was far more horrific than just a phrase, they scourged him or they beat him. The, 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 the graphic, the Bible is written in basically three languages. It's written in Hebrew, and it's written in Greek, which are the two main. You've got Aramaic in some portions of the book of Daniel. But you have to understand that those two languages were chosen by the Lord because of their ability to describe things in such utter detail, and that they're word picture languages, especially Hebrew. And they're also enumerated at times and used, and there's all kinds of different dimensions to the Word of God that many of us may have not explored. So these languages are very and highly descriptive. Well, where we will use the word cool to describe our drink or the dress someone is wearing or the show we just saw, Greeks did not do that. Greeks had a word for every type of cool there was, just like love has definitely, you know, four or five different um, words for love. Also for power, there are four main words used for power. And they describe different things because it's a detailed language. The English language is not that at all. And so many times when we read the scripture, if we don't go to the original language, we don't get the full import of what it's saying. And when it comes to the travesty that was put upon our Lord Jesus Christ, this can be very PG-13 when it is very R-rated in the original language. But when we look at verse 27, <clears throat> we see the sufferings of Jesus. And then it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now notice this, when we think of a battalion, you think about a group of soldiers, but in many of the displays in the various movies and things of that nature, you might see 
you know, 10, 15. There was over 600 soldiers in this room that Jesus was thrust into and held. 600. Now that's a conservative estimate. Now these people had one thing. They wanted to make an uh, example of all lawbreakers, of anyone that would break the law or anyone that would bring any insubordination to Rome or to the ruling class. And so they abused him. And this didn't only happen here. It happened three times. It happened in the court of Caiaphas. It happened in the court of Pontius Pilate. And it happened in the court of Herod. He was beaten and brutalized and spit on all, in all of these three. Now, when he came to Caiaphas's court, it said all of the elders of Israel that were in the Sanhedrin the Greek describes each one of them coming up to him and spitting on his face. Now, we're going to get into what that means and what that, how that is applicable to our lives here in just a moment. But I want you to get the, the full you know, example of what's going on here. This is not just a normal arrest. This is a brutality that is an angry atom our sons of Adam beating on his creator. And it's fueled by that. And that's the reason why the violence is so extreme. Okay? So it says that um, he went before them and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now I want us to look at the word stripped. Have you ever been stripped? Maybe not physically, but there are people in your life and people that have been in your life that want to strip you and humiliate you. Because what does stripping do? It humiliates and basically begins to demean the person there, taking away their power, taking away their strength, and laying them bare. I'm here to tell you, my friends, Jesus was laid bare for you. He was stripped for you. He was shamed so that you would never have to be shamed. People try to strip one another with their words. They try to character assassinate, demoralize and demean people, stripping them of what others may think of them through their words. And this can be very, very despairing for anyone that's going through this, feeling utterly and totally humiliated by school friends, by peers, by, you know, bosses, by governments. The reason why Hitler stripped the Jews is because they believed the body was the image of God and it was a shame for them to be seen naked. And every time a tyrant would go after the people of God, he would always strip them because it would demoralize them, demean them, ridicule them, and shame them. I'm here to tell you, Jesus was able to go through this because of Gethsemane. He was able to do this and submit to the will of God even when he 
knew he had the ability to call 12 legions of angels. Now, I'm telling you, one of the greatest battles you'll ever have in your life is when someone is trying to strip you because they want to get the attention off of them and their sin, and they're trying to shame you and humiliate you and mock you, and you know well within yourself of the things that they have done that would validate and vindicate you. Jesus had that in spades, but yet he didn't use it. Think about that. The most powerful person on planet earth was Jesus. In fact, when they came to get him and they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. And it caused them to fall. Not just one time, two times. They fell to, they didn't just fall in obedience. They were shaken and they fell. Totally discombobulated. Totally disoriented. But yet, because of Gethsemane, because he had crucified himself first in prayer, he was able, as the scripture said, to have a rope tied around his neck and to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. The most powerful being in the universe who could have, by word of knowledge and word of wisdom, spoke to every man that took him under arrest and spoke to the sin and the depravity in each one of their lives, chose to be led by them to his own destruction. He had the goods on everybody, but yet he didn't use it. There have been times when people will mock you, when people will tell lies about you to cover up their own lies. And you know it. You got pictures. And the Lord says, don't use them. I'm telling you, that's one of the greatest wrestling matches you'll have. Don't tell them what you know. Don't tell them what you know. Think about that. It's because of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a place where we put to death Our pride, our ego, our flesh. You're not going to get it anywhere else. Hello. If I could sell a tonic that would cause your flesh to be denutralized, I'd be a rich man. But there's no tonic whatsoever. It's only the Word of God in obedience to the word. Amen? <clears throat> so he was stripped. He said they twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him. And the word mocked there means they began to play games with him. Have you ever had people try to play games with you? Now these were mocking games in which they would begin to say, Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And kind of malign his, his stance and what he had said, probably bringing up sermons that he had preached, 
uh, reenacting miracles that he did, mocking them, just, not, you know, trying to demean them in some way. But Jesus opened not his mouth. He wasn't uh, offended by it. He didn't get up in arms. He was able to sit there and watch the very people that his sacrifice is going to save and just let them say whatever they wanted to say. Jesus truly exemplified, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. How was he able to do that? Why am I not able to do that successfully 100% of the time? Well, it's how many times have I been to the press? I'm going to say this because the Spirit of the Lord's telling me to say this, all right? Majority of counseling sessions I have with other Christians are really based upon one thing, no prayer life. No prayer life. They have no prayer life whatsoever. Now, when I mean prayer life, I incorporate the word because you can't really truly pray until you have the word. They go together, amen? But most of the time when it comes to marriage issues, when it comes to issues with the will of God for their life or it comes to issues of problems, situations in their life, it's going to boil down to they don't have any prayer life. First thing you ask, well, have you been praying? No, I haven't been praying for a while. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> there's your sign, as one guy used to say back in the 90s. But uh, you've got to go to the press. Doesn't mean you're always going to be pressed. It doesn't mean you just show up. Gethsemane was his custom. He went there. He went there consistently and prayed and met with God. Where's your consistency? I'm not here to condemn because I wrestle with it just as much as you do. Just because I'm in ministry doesn't necessarily mean that I have a great prayer life every season of my life. There are times when I wrestle with it as well. There are times when it's sweet and it's wonderful and it's great. And there are times in which you just say, I don't even know why I'm doing this. It's just a truth. But we show up. Because we're being prepared. We're being prepared for the greatest tragedy or the greatest success in our life. And it depends upon whether it's going to be transformative if we are in the press. Because right. it's only intimacy with God that's going to bring us to the place that we need to have. And you know what? Reading the Word of God is a form of prayer. You're interacting with a living organism. Did you know that? When, you, when you're reading the Bible, it reads you. It, it, it's the only book that can. So there's, there's interaction between us and the Spirit of God as we read the Word of God. So when I talk about prayer, I'm not just talking about praying and not getting in the Word. I'm talking about both because you can't have one without the other. Okay. So, you know, I know that people have been mocked. Not to the degree that Jesus was mocked, but you've been mocked. And some of you have been mocked for your faith. Oh, Miss Holy now. 
You know, ever heard that? Oh, Miss Super Christian, Mr. Mr. Holy is here. Hello. Makes family reunions very fun. Christmas is a blast. People been mocked. When tragedy happens to your life, what do they do? Well, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a believer. I, I thought you, you know, you knew, you know, you, you had it together. That doesn't mean anything. Being a Christian does not mean have it together. That is not a definition or a synonym for Christianity. It is not having it together. I can tell you, I do not have it together. Neither do you. And that's why we need the press. That's why we need the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. Now notice it also says, they said, hail king of the Jews, and they spit on him. Have you ever been spit on? You have to understand what spitting on someone means, and especially in their face. When they spit on Jesus, they were saying, I totally and utterly disregard you as a human being. You do not matter. It was as if you shouldn't be even born. And they all spit on his face. How horrible to have that happen. It was the total and utter declaring of total rejection. I reject you. I reject what you're about. I don't even believe you should be on this world. You know, there are people that will spit on you physically and figuratively. They will utterly disregard you. They will demean and demoralize you. They will talk down about you. They will act as if you were never in existence. Jesus went through it. Jesus was able to take it because he knew the will of God, because he'd been to Gethsemane. There are many times that we're pressed in our lives and we misinterpret what's going on. And so there's a time to yield, but there's also a time to defend. Come on, there's also times in which we need to say something. But we're not going to know that if we haven't been to the press. There's absolutely no way I can interpret whether this action is satanically inspired in the sense that's an attack of the devil or opposition of the devil, or it may be the outer working of something that God wants to do. I'm not going to know unless I'm in communion with him. Hello. I'm telling you, this is getting quiet here, all right? They mocked him again, they stripped him again, and then they led him away to be crucified. Now, no one here has ever experienced crucifixion. But you know, life, sometimes we will say, it feels like I'm being crucified here. Times in which it just feels as if you're pinned against a post. Immobile, naked, ashamed, bleeding out. 
Jesus was able to endure all of this and even utter from the very cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How did that happen? It happened because he said, not my will, but thy will be done. The Bible says that when Jesus received that and got a hold of that and prayed it for three times, because he had to consistently pray it. How many have prayed more than one time over something like that? He prayed three times. It said that angels came and they ministered to him and they strengthened him. So in one point, we see Jesus falling on the ground, rolling in agony, bleeding as if great drops of blood. And then we see him coming to his disciples and say, my betrayer has come. The time is at hand. Arise, you know, my, my betrayer is coming. So he obviously had been strengthened. Amen. And I'm here to tell you, friends, if you want a resurrection... Death is always a prerequisite. In anything you do in life, in walking with the Lord, death is always a part of rebirth in any area of your life. There has to be a Gilgal before there can be a Jordan. There has to be a cutting away, a death of something in order to walk in newness of life. And we haven't arrived. I mean, I'm more like Jesus today than I was yesterday, but I plan on being more like him tomorrow than I am today. And there are new levels and new areas that God wants to bring us to that require not just the will of God to be played out, but for it to be pressed out through a cyclical cycle of events that bring about the orange becoming orange juice. Amen? Now, I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to close this out. Colossians chapter 3. What does the press do for us? Well, the press takes care of one of the greatest forces in your life which is the character and nature of the flesh, which is known as pride. Pride. And pride is a nasty, awful thing. It is a stinky thing. In fact, if you go to church here and call this your home, I don't want to be at your funeral saying he was a proud man. That is not what I want to say because that is not a compliment. God hates pride. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. To understand and to magnify grace to its highest level and highest standard means that you must understand that uh, humility and grace go hand in hand. You to, To receive something by grace means I have to humble myself to receive it. And we're all at different various places in that because there are things that are easier to receive than others. I know people that are so proud they can't receive groceries for their babies 
when they have no ability at the time to take care of them. I've seen people be, not be able to resist the grace of God, resist what God is trying to do in their life because it didn't match what they wanted or it wasn't the method in which they desired it. We can have specific ways in which we are self-sufficient, selfish, and self-absorbed. And what the press does for us is it gets rid of those aspects of our life. Now, it's a dragon you're going to fight with the rest of your life. It's not something that's going to go away. You're not going to come up to the altar and say, Lord, take away my pride and get up and it be gone and it not show up tomorrow. It'll show up tomorrow. It has to be done. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, I crucify my flesh, and he actually said daily. You know, I, I do it on a consistent basis. But why? Because pride is the voice of the flesh. Pride is self-sufficiency, self-absorption, selfishness, and pride is deceptive. Obadiah, the third verse in your Old Testament says, the pride of thine heart has deceived you. So proud people are deceived people. Pride is, is believing lies about yourself yeah. and about others. And what Gethsemane does, it, it begins to come against that area of pride in your life. Because in order to receive from God, I have to graciously humble myself. Some people receive salvation like it's a badge or something. No, I have to humble myself to receive that. I have to believe that I'm a sinner. Come on now. There's some people get, get come up and pray a prayer and they don't even believe they're a sinner. They don't believe what the Bible says they are. They just, well, I need a little religion in my life. I just need a little, little dash of Jesus. My marriage is in trouble. My wife was going to kill me if I didn't come. So I might as well just go whole hog and come up here and get saved and baptized. Split hell wide open. No, I have to acknowledge what the Bible says about me. Oh, I could go into a lot of stuff there, but I'm not going to. All right, okay. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. How many are raised with Christ? All right, five of you. That's great. The altar call will be filled. <laughs> if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have, what's that next word? You have what? 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 What's that word again? So that means that you're dead. As we say in Manford, D-E-D, dead. Hello, for you have died, and where's your life? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
pride resists the Lord, grace receives from the Lord. So pride and humility are two forces that either keep us from experiencing God or cause us to get the full import of what Jesus has done. I can humble myself and be exalted or I can lift myself up and be abased. Okay? So how was Jesus able to do what he did? The most powerful being in the universe who could have called 12 legions of angels the entire time he was going through his situation, chose not to, said he opened not his mouth. How was he able to do that? Because he crucified his flesh. He crucified the aspects of his life that would be resistant to the will of God. He deadened himself to his natural passions. Amen. Now, if we had a coffin up here and we had a, a deceased person that was in that coffin and uh, we wanted to pay our last respects this morning and we lift up that lid and we see the deceased person sitting there and I just went over here and I said, you are the sorriest individual I have ever met in all of my days. And besides that, you are ugly. You have always been ugly. And you come by it honest because your mama's ugly. What is that corpse going to do? What's it going to do? Is it going to rise up? Choke me? You know, is it going to defend its mother? No, it's not going to do a thing. Because why? It's dead. Over and over in the scripture, this concept, we're to be dead to sin. We're to be dead and to walk dead. We're to put on the new man, put off the old man. But here's another thing, because pride is so tricky because it does, just doesn't come when we've had victory. It comes also when we've had defeat. Because when we have disappointment in our life, we tend to insulate ourselves, try to protect ourselves, and really what we're using is the media of pride. Because we want to protect ourselves from hurt, from pain, from criticism, so we paint with pride. We don't know it, but we're actually painting our own cell. Okay? So when it comes to pride, we need to understand that pride is a very manipulating force. Jesus could have been manipulated. When you're going through trauma and you're going through the things that he went through, your emotions can be utterly manipulated. Well, see, Gethsemane caused him to be able to bring his, his emotions into subjection. To where he was, uh, he was not able to be manipulated. And he had offers. Pilate wanted to free him. Herod wanted to free him. If he would just do a miracle on demand. 
So he had all these opportunities for people to be sympathetic towards his blight because they knew about the envy of the Sanhedrin. They knew that he was unjustly accused. They knew that these were lies, but yet he chose not to defend himself. In fact, three times it states that Jesus did not answer Pontius Pilate. And in Roman law, if you do not defend yourself after three times, you are considered guilty. How was he able to keep his mouth shut? He said, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do what I see my father do. He was able to connect himself at Gethsemane with the anchor of his father so that he could stand in the midst of utter and absolute, abominable, atrocious acts towards him, and he was able to fulfill the will of God. That's where I want to be. But see, he couldn't be manipulated. He couldn't be manipulated by their mocking. But if I go to the same dead man and I say, you know what? You were the best example of a Christian that I ever saw. You were the greatest man that ever lived other than Jesus Christ. What is that corpse going to do? Is it going to all of a sudden get a big smile on his face? No, it's not going to do nothing. See, when we go to Gethsemane, when we go through the press, what really sidetracks people from doing the will of God is distraction. And some of the greatest distractions is praise and censure. You'd be walking down the road doing the will of God. All of a sudden, everybody tells you that you're the best thing since microwave popcorn. It will make you go off course, my friends. You go walking down the road and people say, you know what? You don't need to be doing what you're doing. You're awful at it. It will sidetrack you. But when you're dead, but when you're dead, I said, but when you're dead, whatever, whatever, I'm getting up, I'm going to step in, I'm going to do, I'm going to turn the open sign on, we're going to be open for business. Amen? The secret of Gethsemane is this is that in order to go through the perilous times of doing the will of God, and there are perilous times when you do the will of God. Gethsemane prepares us because it sees the end from the beginning in prayer. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Well, the Lord has talked to us today. And many are in the valley of decision. Many are in intersections. 
they've been offered alternative deals, alternative ways. Devil doesn't want you on God's road. He wants to put another road because he knows that on that road, you've got connections, you've got provision, you've got everything that you need. Is it an easy road? No, Jesus said narrow is the way. Some people are on the broad road here today. They're, they're believers, and they're on the broad road. I encourage you today to make a decision to commit and consecrate your life to go to your personal Gethsemane. Go to your garden alone and wrestle, wrestle with the will of God. God blesses the wrestle. Oh, but pastor, I have so many doubts. God's okay with that. Oh, pastor, I, I, I'm afraid I might say something wrong. The Lord will never mock you. He will never turn his back on you. He will not deafen his ear towards you, no matter what you say. You're dealing with the one entity that knows everything about you. Stop withholding. Lay it out. Lay it out. Your fears, your doubts, your unbelief. Lay them out. Go into that strong tower. Lay it out. Let God begin to embolden you from within and endunamize you, as the Greek says, from within. Let him do the work. You stop doing the work. You rest in him. Allow him to bring about his will in your life. Stop trying to make it happen. Stop trying to work it out. Stop trying to wrestle it physically with your own physical strength. It won't work. God has a Sabbath rest for you. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop wrestling in your mind. Receive by faith, by humbling yourself and saying, you are God and I am not. Amen. And we're going to have ministers that are going to be up here. If you need prayer in this area, if you need anything from the Lord, born again, baptism of the Holy Spirit, healing, deliverance, or you need someone to pray with you concerning the will of God for your life, they're going to be up here. So I encourage you to take advantage of it. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>